We need a political revolution in this country. Everybody claims they can fix the USA, but do you really believe what they say? I know a guy who speaks right from the heart. He's not controlled by the billionaires, have you seen his crazy cool hair? He's not afraid to stand up for what's right. But he can't do it alone, you know we've gotta help him fight. We need a man like Bernie Sanders. He's the coolest guy around. He'll turn America's frown upside down. Addressing income inequality, this country ain't no oligarchy. I know a guy who cares about us all. Serving independence in the history of Congress. He's got the record of standing for what's right. Oh, yeah. But he can't do this alone, you know. We've gotta help him fight. We need a man like Bernie Sanders. He's the coolest guy around. He'll turn America's round upside down. We need to rebuild our crumbling infrastructure. The United States must lead the world in reversing climate change, child care, to higher education. Must be affordable for all. We're going to pass a constitutional amendment to get rid of Citizens United. Health care is a right of all people, not a privilege. We need to raise the minimum wage to a living wage. We have to end that was the Bernie Sanders song by Leo Dezes, which you can find on YouTube by searching for Leo Dezes, and that is D-E-Z. Yes. At the end of the program, we'll hear a tribute to Bernie Sanders, A Common Dream, by Wayward Nephilim. Greetings and welcome back to Bernie 2016. This is an independent podcast established to follow and comment on Bernie Sanders' candidacy for President of the United States. This podcast is completely independent of any candidate, party, or PAC. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com. Or you can follow on Twitter, BernieUS2016. You can find out more about this podcast and some other things that I post, including a collection of a large number of articles via my Flipboard magazine called Bernie for President, where I am closing in on 7,000 articles. And you can find all of that on my site at Bernie-2016.com. First up tonight is a story from The Guardian, and this story is by Allison Flood. Socialism was the most looked-up word on Merriam-Webster's site this year. A change the American Dictionary publisher attributes to U.S. presidential candidate Bernie Sanders, who has positioned himself as a democratic socialist. Last year, culture was the dictionary's top word. This year, socialism sparked intense curiosity with an increase of 169% in lookups compared to 2014, according to the dictionary. Socialism has been near the top of our online dictionary lookup list for several years, said editor-at-large Peter Sokolowski. 
However, this year, lookups for socialism moved up even further, beginning with the July campaign events for Bernie Sanders, remained high throughout the following months, and spiking again after the first Democratic debate in October. Merriam-Webster said that the fact that Sanders had embraced socialism, quote, shows the term has moved beyond its Cold War associations. It has now included the new information in its dictionary entry for the term, writing, quote, in the modern era, pure socialism has been seen only rarely and usually briefly in a few communist regimes. Far more common are systems of social democracy, now often referred to as democratic socialism, in which extensive state regulation with limited state ownership has been employed by democratically elected governments, as in Sweden and Denmark, in the belief that it produces a fair distribution of income without impairing economic growth. So, sparked in part by Bernie's campaign, the word socialism is the most looked up word on that particular dictionary site. This next story is from IBT, which is International Business Times. It is by Ismat Sarah Mangla. Bernie Sanders visits D.C. mosque, blasts Trump for bigotry against Muslims. Bernie Sanders on Wednesday became the second Democratic presidential candidate to visit a mosque. The U.S. Senator from Vermont attended an interfaith roundtable at Majid Muhammad, a mosque located some two miles from the White House in Washington, D.C. Sanders and various faith leaders called for an end to, quote, the anti-Muslim rhetoric and hatred, unquote, they say has been inspired by Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump. Trump has not backed down from his proposal to ban the entry of all non-American Muslims into the United States in an effort to combat terrorism. Sanders said that Trump's proposal resonated of, quote, centuries of bigotry and discrimination, sometimes with unspeakable results. Muslim, Christian, and Jewish leaders were at the roundtable and included Muslim Congressman Keith Ellison of Minnesota. Majid Muhammad, which calls itself, quote, the nation's mosque, was opened in the 1930s. Quote, now at this moment, with all of the fears and anxieties people have of terrorism, there are demagogues out there, people like Donald Trump, who are once again attempting to divide us up in xenophobic and racist ways. They want us to believe that the average Muslim is a terrorist, and they want us to stop Muslims from coming here. And unbelievably, there are some, in defiance of the Constitution, who are talking about shutting down mosques like the one we're in here, he said. Do we come together, or do we allow demagogues to divide us up? Sanders, who is Jewish, said that such rhetoric mirrors the language Nazis in Germany spread before World War II. Quote, we must never forget what happened under the racist ideology of the Nazis, which led to the deaths of millions and millions of people, including family members of mine, said Sanders, adding that Trump's rhetoric has contributed to a rise in hate crimes and speech against Muslim Americans. Congressman Ellison praised Sanders for his stand. Quote, At a time when bigots are leading in national polls, it takes a certain amount of courage to stand up and call us to our higher and nobler values, which you have just done, 
Ellison said at the event. And in addition to um, speaking at that mosque, Sanders has spoken in other religious uh, places of worship. He has been invited to um, churches to speak to congregations as well. Um, so he's definitely, you know, reaching out to all of the constituencies he can to offer his message and um, gain additional support. One place where he has gained some additional support is another endorsement from a public group. And this is from the Citizen Action of New York webpage. And this is by Charlie Albanetti. Citizen Action of New York announced Monday its endorsement of Bernie Sanders for President of the United States. Citizen Action's endorsement of Senator Sanders marks the first statewide organization in New York to stand with the senator who is running in the Democratic primary. Quote, we desperately need a president who will fight back against the schemes that CEOs and Wall Street bankers have used to destroy our economy and steal wealth from our communities, especially communities of color, said Yvette Alfonso, president of Citizen Action of New York and a parent from Albany. Quote, everyone in New York and across America should have the opportunity to live a healthy and prosperous life. We're proud to stand with Bernie Sanders for president because we know he understands that our communities are stronger when we care for our neighbors and work together. Quote, Citizen Action of New York builds grassroots power by organizing communities to stand up for an America that works for all of us, not just the top 1%, Senator Sanders said. Quote, I'm honored to receive their endorsement. Citizen Action of New York is a community-based grassroots organization with over 30,000 members and seven chapters and affiliates across New York State. Each regional chapter and affiliate board held discussions about Citizen Action's presidential endorsement and made recommendations to the organization's state board, which voted overwhelmingly to endorse Bernie Sanders for president. Citizen Action's volunteer leadership cited Senator Sanders' positions on the economy and Wall Street regulation, the environment and energy policy, racial and gender justice, and strengthening democracy by limiting the power of the financial elite as key factors in their decision to endorse. And from that endorsement, we move on to a different story about um, some online actions taken and really who was behind or likely to be behind those actions. And this is a piece that was written by Bill Palmer. Um, it's, I, I personally can't say I experienced anything that this particular piece is discussing. Um, this piece discusses a number of sites that support Hillary Clinton, and I'm not a frequent uh, traveler to any of those sites. So I take the story with a grain of salt, but I do um, find it an interesting and not uh, unexpected turn of events based just on history and knowing that these types of things do go on elsewhere. 
So Bill Palmer writes, Republicans pretending to be Bernie Sanders supporters infiltrate Hillary Clinton Facebook groups. This week, nearly every major Facebook group focused on Hillary Clinton was attacked by a gang of trolls who went so far as to change their profile pictures to a photo of Clinton in order to get approved before turning around and littering the place with hundreds of spam posts favoring her rival, Bernie Sanders. It was a timed and coordinated attack, right down to the hashtags. I even caught one of them in the act trying to organize and plot the infiltration on their own pages. But here's the twist. After watching a few of these attacks play out, I'm now fairly certain the ringleaders were not Bernie Sanders supporters at all. Instead, the evidence suggests... They were Republicans in disguise. That's right. Online political intrigue has now grown to the point where we're talking in all seriousness about Republicans pretending to be Bernie Sanders supporters so they can pretend to be Hillary Clinton supporters. I've never been much interested in empty conspiracy theories, so I've largely ignored the popular claim from Hillary supporters that the, quote, Bernie bots were secretly Republicans. Still, something never added up about this particular subset, and I've spent months trying to figure out who they really were. National polls suggest that around 85% to 90% of Bernie supporters would indeed vote for Hillary if she were the nominee. And whenever you meet a Bernie supporter in the real world, they nearly always acknowledge that they'll vote for Hillary in the general election if they end up needing to. They simply like Bernie better, as is their prerogative. Yet in the online space, the leaders of leaders, every Bernie Sanders group, are the type who spend all their time spreading bizarre conspiracies about Hillary and none of their time promoting Bernie's social agenda. These leaders never came across as actual supporters of Bernie, and now I've learned that they aren't. The attacks on the Hillary Clinton Facebook groups, despite being highly coordinated, have been rather simplistic. One person pretends to be a Hillary supporter, gets approved by the group, adds their co-conspirators to the group, and adds as many other random Bernie supporters as possible for good measure. Then they pick a time to begin posting as many updates and comments as possible, totaling hundreds per minute, in the hopes of turning the group into a wasteland. But this is where they give themselves away. The posts from the supposed Bernie supporters have nothing to do with anything Bernie is promoting. Instead, they're mostly the kind of graphically explicit anti-Hillary cartoons that no liberal would post no matter how much they disliked her, along with links to anti-Hillary articles from the kind of extremist conservative propaganda sites that no one would even know exist unless they were a member of such sites to begin with. Even if some Bernie Sanders supporters did become overzealous and hatched up a plot like this, they would be posting entirely different material than what these trolls have been posting. Instead, this is, almost without question, the work of extreme conservatives who are trying to attack Hillary Clinton. They just happen to be impersonating Bernie Sanders supporters in the process. And the only motivation for that would be to try to turn Hillary supporters and Bernie supporters against each other for the sake of handing the election to the Republicans. So let me say this to both groups of supporters. If you're a Hillary supporter, don't blame the Bernie supporters for this kind of behavior. Best I can tell, they have no idea it's even going on. 
despite hundreds of random Bernie supporters having been added to the Hillary groups, no one other than the 10 ringleaders ever did make a single spam post. No one else was in on it. When I confronted some of these rank-and-file Bernie supporters, none of them appeared to have any idea why they'd been added to a Hillary group to begin with. This was not their handiwork, nor is there any way possible that Bernie himself or his campaign could possibly have any connection to these loons, so don't go blaming him either. And if you're a Bernie supporter, I would encourage you to be careful who you trust online right now. This incident demonstrates that some of the leaders of the online Bernie groups are in fact Republicans pretending to support Bernie so they can use it as an excuse to attack Hillary. Now that you're aware of it, I'm guessing their behavior disgusts you as much as it disgusts anyone else. So again, as much as I follow and support Bernie Sanders and read an awful lot of what is online, particularly via Twitter, not not so much via Facebook, uh, this is a story that I was completely unfamiliar with until reading this particular piece, and I thought it had an interesting viewpoint, but can't really comment on whether I have enough evidence to whether it is accurate or not, but just wanted to get it out there as a, an interesting piece that I found this week. And here's another piece that came up this week as the nations of the world were meeting in Paris and discussing climate change and global warming. Um, an agreement was signed at the wrap-up of those meetings, and Bernie had a response to that. And this is from the Huffington Post by Ashley Allman. Democratic presidential candidate Senator Bernie Sanders on Saturday criticized the Global Climate Change Accord adopted after two weeks of negotiations among diplomats in Paris, saying that the agreement goes, quote, nowhere near far enough. The landmark 31-page agreement includes a pledge to curb climate change by reducing carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions, calling on countries to support each other in adapting to the environmental challenges resulting from climate change, such as devastating droughts and rising sea levels. Sanders said he didn't think the accord went far enough to demand action from those countries to lower carbon emissions. Quote, well, this is a step forward. It goes nowhere near far enough. The planet is in crisis. We need bold action in the very near future, and this does not provide that, Sanders said in the statement. Quote, in the United States, we have a Republican Party which is much more interested in co contributions from the fossil fuel industry than they care about the future of the planet. That is true all over the globe. We've got to stand up to the fossil fuel industry and fight for national and international legislation that transforms our energy system away from fossil fuels as quickly as possible. And this next piece is from Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders released this a uh, short time ago. It is called, it is one of the Bernie Brief, or, or it's a video from the Bernie Brief series. I have uh, played earlier videos from this series, one in particular on Social Security. And this particular one is on 
climate change. So here is what Bernie has released as far as a message on climate change. Hi, this is Senator Bernie Sanders. This country and our planet face some enormous problems. And I can assure you that these problems are not going to go away. They're not going to get better if we ignore them or sweep them under the rug. One of the global crises that must be addressed now for the sake of our children and grandchildren is climate change. And let me be very clear. The debate is over. Pope Francis is right in saying that the world is on a suicidal course with regard to climate change. Virtually all scientists who have studied this issue have concluded that climate change is real, it's caused by human activity, and it is already causing devastating problems in our country and around the world. Just a few facts. 2015 is on track to be the hottest year on record and scientists are already predicting 2016 will be even hotter. In fact, 13 of the 15 hottest years ever recorded have all occurred since the year 2000. In recent years, we have seen shrinking ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica, rising sea levels, threatening coastal communities all over the world, oceans that are warming and becoming more acidified, threatening the food supply for millions of people. Increased droughts throughout the world in California and the southwest of the United States. Drought has led to wildfires unprecedented in their duration and in their strength. The most powerful hurricane ever recorded, with winds for Hurricane Patricia hitting 200 miles per hour and gusts of up to 247 miles per hour. Heat waves that have killed thousands of people in Europe, Pakistan, and India. Extreme weather disturbances, including stronger hurricanes, torrential rainfalls, and more severe flooding. And here's what's most frightening. Scientists say that if we do not act boldly and within a very short window of opportunity, a very bad situation that exists today will become much worse in years to come. What the scientists are telling us is that if we do not get our act together, our planet Earth, our only planet, could see a global increase in temperature of 5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of this century. 5 to 10 degrees Fahrenheit. And what happens then? Well, among many other concerns, the CIA and the Department of Defense tell us that a warming planet will increase international instability. Rising sea levels and the flooding of coastal communities, as well as more drought and floods, could well result in the forced migration of tens of millions of people desperately searching for economic security, for clean water, and for land to grow food. People fighting over limited natural resources means more war and means more death. A warmer planet means more disease, malaria, dengue, yellow fever, and other tropical illnesses will spread into parts of the world where they don't currently exist. Air pollution, exacerbated by increasing temperatures, will also increase, causing more disease, especially for children. 
A warmer planet means the expenditure of hundreds of billions of dollars to replace destroyed infrastructure, roads, bridges, and water systems that will have to be rebuilt. And while we will all suffer the impacts of climate change, the sad truth is that climate change falls especially hard upon the most vulnerable people in our country and throughout the world, people who have the fewest resources to protect themselves. And now let me say a word about politics and campaign finance and how all of that relates to the climate change crisis. Now, given the fact that virtually the entire scientific community has described the devastation that is occurring and will intensify as a result of climate change, how does it happen that we have a major political party, the Republican Party, which, with few exceptions, refuses to even recognize the reality of climate change, let alone take action to do anything about it? Why is that? How does that happen? Why does the political party which controls the U.S. House, which controls the U.S. Senate, and which wants to occupy the White House, refuse to even acknowledge the reality of climate change? The answer is pretty simple. Since 2009, the oil companies, the coal companies, the electric utilities have spent a staggering $2.2 billion dollars in federal lobbying, and another $330 million in federal campaign contributions. In other words, as a result of ineffective lobbying legislation and the disastrous Citizens United Supreme Court decision, large corporations can now spend as much as they want on campaigns and elections. And that is exactly what the fossil fuel industry is doing. Here is the simple truth. Any Republican candidate for president, for the U.S. Senate or for the U.S. House, who has the courage to acknowledge the reality of climate change and who wants to do something about it, that candidate will lose the financial support, the campaign contributions coming from the Koch brothers and other powerful special interests in the fossil fuel industry. Further, there is a strong likelihood that that candidate would be challenged by a primary opponent when he or she came up for election, a candidate supported by the industry. In other words, when we talk about a corrupt campaign finance system, there is no clearer example of that corruption than how the Republican Party is more interested in representing the interests and profits of the fossil fuel industry than the well-being of the entire planet. And in that regard, I say to my Republican colleagues, history will cast a very harsh judgment on you. I know it is not easy, but I ask you to worry less about your campaign contributions and worry more about the planet that you're going to leave to your children and your grandchildren. Okay, we are facing a crisis of huge magnitude. What do we do about it? First, the United States must lead the international community in transitioning away from fossil fuels toward energy efficiency and sustainable energy. The United States alone cannot solve the crisis of climate change. We need to be aggressive 
in working with China, Russia, India, and countries throughout the world to make that happen. And by the way, the people of China should not need a lot of urging on this subject, given the fact that their hospitals are being flooded with people made sick by the incredible level of air pollution Beijing is now experiencing. Secondly, in terms of specific proposals, what should we be doing? First, we can save an enormous amount of energy by moving aggressively toward energy efficiency. 40% of the energy used in this country is used to heat or cool buildings, and there is enormous waste in that process. Making our homes, office buildings, schools, and factories more energy efficient will save consumers large amounts of money on their fuel bills, cut carbon emissions dramatically, and create millions of good-paying jobs. When we talk about energy efficiency, we must also focus on transportation. 26% of the energy used in this country is for transportation. Clearly, while we have made some progress in this area, we must make our cars and trucks much more fuel efficient. When the Ford Model T first came onto the market in 1908, 1908, it got 13 to 21 miles per gallon. That was almost 100 years ago. But in 2015, there are still cars on the road that get the same gas mileage as one of the very first mass-produced cars. That's pretty crazy. We must move aggressively toward the electrification of our cars and trucks. Electric vehicles can go up to four times as far as a gasoline-powered car on the same amount of energy. Our job is to make those hybrid cars and electric vehicles much more affordable and build the infrastructure that will sustain them. Transportation efficiency also means major improvements in our passenger and cargo rail systems. Today, our rail system lags behind Japan, Europe, and even China in terms of high-speed passenger and cargo rail. A modern rail system would mean that huge amounts of cargo would move across this country in a much more efficient way than simply relying on trucks. A modern, efficient passenger rail system would mean that we can take a significant amount of car traffic off of our roads. All of this will result in a stronger economy and a very significant reduction in carbon emissions. While making our country and planet more energy efficient is clearly an important part of what we've got to do, we must also aggressively transition away from fossil fuels towards sustainable energy like solar, wind, and geothermal. In terms of solar, the very good news is that the cost of solar panels is plummeting, and everything being equal, they will continue to plummet. Our goal must be to help families and businesses all over this country with the upfront costs that are required to move toward rooftop solar. Further, we need to invest in utility-scale solar plants as well. A very good piece of news is that we have recently seen major breakthroughs in energy storage technologies. These breakthroughs will enable us to utilize energy from batteries when the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing. We must also tap the great wind resources we have. In Texas, wind power is now one of the least expensive sources of electricity generation in this country. Last year, Iowa produced about 29% of its electricity from wind energy, and it expects to reach 40% by 2020. There is enormous potential for wind energy in this country, which must be 
utilized. Geothermal power is another source of energy with great potential. Building a new geothermal plant is approximately one-third cheaper than a new modern natural gas planet. And these are just some of the new technologies that are out there. Research and development will create even more. Now, many of the ideas that I've discussed have been included in new legislation that I have recently introduced. Not only does this legislation pave the way for the transformation of our energy system away from fossil fuel to energy efficiency and sustainable energy, it also provides a major disincentive for the production of more fossil fuel as we impose a tax on carbon for fossil fuel producers and importers, as well as doing away with long-term subsidies that have gone to the fossil fuel industry. The bottom line is that the fossil fuel industry cannot continue to destroy our planet with impunity. Let me conclude uh, by saying this. Climate change is one of the great challenges facing our planet. But if we are smart, if we are prepared to be politically active, if we are prepared to stand up to powerful special interests, we can prevail. And for the sake of our children and grandchildren, we must prevail. Climate change is one of the great struggles of our time. We must not lose. Thank you. And that was Bernie Sanders from The Bernie Brief, which is a series of videos that the campaign is releasing on particular topics. And that one was on climate change. You can find that on YouTube or go to the Bernie Sanders website and find that if you want to actually watch the video, which just shows some um, visuals along with the discussion uh, or text that is uh, covered by Bernie. And this piece is from the Daily Cause. And it is by Angel D. Friends and frenemies, what I, what I am about to write is going to resonate with some of us and others of us will scoff and resist as some of the concepts contained within, sorry, at some of the concepts contained within. Life has given me a lot to think about and be thankful about, and admittedly, I am on a bit of a cosmic tear. But I hope that this essay is read with the same spirit within which it was written, and what that, quote, spirit is, I will leave for you to decide. But just know that this essay is decidedly very spiritual. Bernie Sanders is waking people up to their own political power. He is not empowering us but rather he is helping us to remember that as individuals and as expressions of a higher collective consciousness, we have the power to make change and to make a difference. He's using the political platform for his message, but his message crosses all of our collective belief constructs and speaks to the very nature of our humanity. He's waking us up to the fact that politically and by extension across all aspects of our lives, we do not have to accept lesser evilism any longer. That just because something is the status quo does not mean it has to remain so. The status quo is what it is until it's not. And the only way to change it is to simply change it. 
He is reminding all of us that we have the power to change our society, that we have the power to change the way elections are run, and he is waking us up to the fact that we have the power to reclaim the democratic process and take it out of the hands of money and put it back where it belongs. Political power and democracy belongs to we the people. It does not belong to money. Only we the people have the power to change things, but because of our entrenched belief systems, we believe we cannot. Instead of realizing that each moment is a separate moment containing infinite potential, we believe that each moment is simply a linear extension of the one that came before it. And therefore, at worst, nothing will ever change. Nothing can ever change, even if it could. We are told that any change must be gradual. It must be incremental. We must be willing to compromise what we know to be true and right if we really want to change. But I call BS on that notion. If nothing changes, it is because we believe that it can't change, not because change itself is not possible. When people who capture young elephants to use as labor or to sell as circus entertainment The elephant's spirit must first be broken, or it will refuse to submit to human whim. Because elephants are capable of self-awareness, they are also capable of forming belief systems. In order to break an elephant's spirit, it is bound by chains from an early age. As the elephant matures in captivity, the trainers, the people who are breaking the elephant's spirit, can demonstrate the completeness of an elephant's submission by keeping it chained by a string. Even though an adult elephant is perfectly capable of breaking the string, it believes it cannot. But once in a while an elephant will revolt and fight back, and that elephant is deemed to be dangerous, quote, must, or perhaps it has gone mad, or gone rogue, and then it is usually destroyed. That's what happens to a circus elephant who wakes up and refuses to submit. It goes on what we call a, quote, rampage. It becomes dangerous to humans, so it is destroyed. Anyone who has read Orwell's Shooting an Elephant knows of what I speak. Friends, we have become the elephant. We are literally enslaved by our capitalist belief system. Everything we do revolves around getting the money, the getting of money and the spending of money. We believe that without money, we cannot live, that we cannot exist, and yet, What if all the money in the world disappeared tomorrow? Would we stop existing? Would food and shelter vanish? Would knowledge vanish? Would we disappear? We are perfectly capable of existing without money, and yet we are somehow completely enslaved by it. It defines our very existence. Time is money. Money is time. The time you spend not in the service of making money, you are in the service of spending it. If you are eating, you have to spend money to buy food unless you are lucky enough to be situated in such a way that you can grow your own food. Most of us don't have that luxury, and the production of food has been allowed to fall in the hands of a concentrated big businesses, or what we call here at Daily Cause, Big Ag. Like Monsanto, giant corporations control our food supply, and we simply have, by collective agreement, allowed it to happen. But we now, ha- but now we have a large swath of humanity dependent upon corporations for food, the very same people who genetically modify our food and refuse to allow GMO labeling. 
the very people, for example, that contribute to political candidates so they can gain access, and that's why lobbyists, whose first interest is their corporate masters, are allowed to write legislation governing the laws about the quality of our food. In short, many of us are forced to eat shit by large corporations and the politicians they pay for. If you're watching TV in the evening, you're spending money on electricity to power the TV, and you're spending money on broadband to stream video content. You're spending money paying for Netflix or cable or Hulu. You're sitting within walls that define space that you own, or rather, space that you are making monthly payments to a bank in exchange for a piece of paper that says you own it. But if you don't make your payments, the bank owns it. And that's exactly what happened when Wall Street tanked our economy. The banks foreclosed on a bunch of homes and sells them to investment consortiums who rented back to us at inflated prices. And that's why such a large chunk of what we earn goes towards housing. It's an unregulated market run by banks by Wall Street, and they're allowed to perpetuate it by buying access to politicians so they can help write legislation that allows the bank to continue this practice. We can't escape money, even though it's just a belief, or so we have been programmed. We've been programmed to believe that the candidate who gets the most money is going to win because money rules our lives, and our very existence cannot exist without the making and spending of money. What Bernie Sanders is telling us is that we don't need money to win, that we can exist and we can win without having to beg billionaires for money. The only thing the billionaires are spending money on is access to the politicians they are buying with their money. And what Bernie is telling us, by not accepting the money of big corporations like Monsanto, the Koch brothers, Wall Street, Big Pharma, and the insurance racket, and the military-industrial complex, we have the power to exist without those constructs. We don't have to accept corporate rule if we agree not to. We don't have to accept a candidate who is funded by corporations who pay her so they can continue to own our food supply, to own our shelter, to own the very things that exist in this great abundance, but that many are denied due to lack of access to money. One thing that struck me about Sanders when I was reading the recent interview in Rolling Stone magazine is that he gets this. He gets that we are one, that humanity is part of a greater construct, a part of the divine matrix or God consciousness, the very fabric against which our practices, which our particles, are arranged to create the reality in which we exist, our shared reality. I am part of you, you are part of me. We are not individuals existing in a million individual realities. We are all expressions of a single greater consciousness. We are one with each other, one with God, and one with the universe. When Bernie Sanders was asked in the recent Rolling Stone interview if he believed in God, here is what he replied. Yeah, I do. I do. I'm not into organized religion, but I believe that what impacts you impacts me, that we are all united in one way or another. When children go hungry, I get impacted. When kids die because they can't afford medicine, I get impacted. We are one world and one people, and that belief leads me to the conclusion that we just cannot turn our back on human suffering. I agree with Bernie. We are at a tipping point as a species. Our sixth extinction event, otherwise known as the Holocene extinction event, is in full swing right now as I type. 
We have to come together as a species if we want to continue to exist. But the way we exist now is simply not sustainable. When we have a belief system that allows some of us to gorge on unimaginable wealth while others of us are denied the basic elements of survival, we simply cannot continue. And Bernie understands that. We are one world and one people. We are all expressions of a greater singular, all-encompassing consciousness, and when we realize that, we will be and when we realize that, we'll be able of making we'll be capable of making the kind of shift in awareness that allows to bring about change. Because if we don't make changes, we will cease to exist as a species. Global warming is indisputably the single gravest threat that our species faces as a, at this moment in time. There is no precedent for what we are experiencing. This is the first time in known history that human activity has impacted our planet's natural geological cycles to the point we simply cannot predict with certainty what will happen next. But we do know that if we keep doing what we're doing, it's only going to get worse. Bernie Sanders is correct when he links climate change with the threat of terrorism. Parts of the Middle East that were once habitable are becoming inhabitable. Saudi Arabia's largest aquifer is drying up, and they are growing fields of grain in Arizona and shipping it back to Saudi Arabia. 2014 was the hottest year in recorded history until 2015 came along, and we are well on our way to breaking that record again in 2016. Those portions of the Middle East, India, and Pakistan that suffered the worst of it will only continue to suffer, and as a result, there will be massive migration, famine, desperation, and fear, and that will create more theocratic barbarism and terrorism. It's already happening. It's not something that's predicted. It's something that's happening right now, and we believe there is nothing we can do about it. In other words, it's going to take a great shift in awareness an evolutionary leap, if you will, in order to make change. And the only way we can do that is if we believe that we can. And the only way that we can believe that is if we show ourselves that we can do it. And the only way that we can show ourselves we can do it is if we try. And we all know there is no trying. There is only doing. And that's what Bernie's political revolution is all about. It's about believing that we can we are taking the yes we can to a new level. We are taking it from a campaign slogan and turning it into a reality. That's what Bernie's revolution is about. It's about not being afraid. It's about standing up for what we know is good and right. It's not letting fear guide us the way it is guiding some of our leaders with regard to whether or not to accept Syrian refugees. They are making life and death decisions based on fear. As any good Bene Gesserit knows, fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. If we face our fear and let it pass over and through us, when it's gone, only we will remain. Once we realize that we are not our fear, then we will be able to bring about great change for the good of humanity, for the good of our planet, and we'll be able to continue to exist. Political revolution is just the beginning, as we're going to need more than politics to keep ourselves going as a species. But waking up to the fact that we have political power wakes us up to the fact that we have power, generally.
We have the power to make changes. We have the power to change our reality. We, each and every one of us, holds the power of creation within ourselves, the power to change our paradigm. When we wake up to the fact that our chains are merely strings, and strings are merely a particular arrangement of subatomic particles vibrating at a certain frequency at the quantum level of reality, we can simply step out of the paradigm of the bondage that is our collective belief system. We have the power of creatorship. Not only do we each and every one of us have the power of creatorship, we are also the created. We are at once part of creation and creator. We create ourselves so that we can exist, and we exist so that we can create ourselves. Descartes was close when he said, I think, therefore I am. But the I think, therefore, is simply a qualifier. We simply are. We are. I am. When you achieve I am awareness, then you can be here now. And now is a place of infinite potential. Now is when and where we make change. We don't make it later. We make it now. We must live the change. When we finally come together as a people, as one people, and say enough is enough, then we will be able to make change. And friends, that's exactly what you are witnessing right now in this very moment. The people are waking up to the fact that enough is enough. We're mad as hell, and we're not going to take it anymore. And that was a piece written by Angel D. And it spoke to me loudly about a lot of different different things, um, some which I embrace and some which I don't, uh, but I found that it was um, a pretty compelling piece overall, and that was from The Daily Cause. And as I spoke to on a previous episode, um, Killer Mike, the rap artist, um, has been a supporter of Bernie Sanders for quite a while now. He introduced Bernie Sanders at an Atlanta rally. And he also had a interview with Bernie Sanders uh, where he sat and discussed uh, various different topics with Bernie Sanders. And those were those interviews or that interview that was released in six, six parts was just uh, put out in the last day or two. And has gotten a, a lot of uh, media attention. Not the mainstream media. And I again, I should never use that word. Not the corporate media. Not the media that gives uh, Donald Trump 87 minutes for every 20 seconds that it devotes to Bernie Sanders' campaign. That's, that, that's a study of, I believe, ABC Nightly News um, since Bernie launched his campaign. Um. It's not that media, and that media is not, well, we'll we'll see how relevant that media is, um, but I, I feel that media is less and less relevant, and I think that the media that we create, you know, me talking to you, you talking to your neighbors, you broadcasting, you posting a flyer, you, you know, uh, posting something on Facebook, you joining with your neighbors, um, you know, leafleting, 
having a table at an event, um, writing to your local newspaper, uh, we can become the media. And this is a something that singer Jello Biafra from the uh, Dead Kennedys um, said loudly and clearly in the past. Um, you know, don't argue against the media, become the media. Don't complain about what the so-called mainstream media. They're not the mainstream media. You are, you know, we are the people. We can create the media. We can reach out to each other. We can reach out to people we know, and we can reach out to people we don't know. I don't know any of you listening to this podcast at least not that I'm aware of, um, but I can reach you and I can, I can touch you. I don't know my 300 plus followers on Twitter, um, but they see what I write. They hear what I say. You know, I think it's, I think it's fine to discuss how Bernie is, left behind in the corporate media. But I don't think, I think if you expect something different from the corporate media, then you don't have a very good understanding of what the corporate media is there for and what their long history has been. So don't spend too much time wringing your hands about the corporate media. Do something about it. Uh, Become the media. So here's a segment of the interview that uh, Killer Mike did with Bernie Sanders. And there are six different segments. I'm going to just play one of those here. Um, And please go online and check out the rest. Um, One piece that wrote about this uh, interview series said um, Killer Mike should interview all of the presidential candidates. So... Um, it's a, a very well done discussion that uh, Killer Mike has with Bernie Sanders. Sorry about that. Okay. It, we're in the hood. Pit bulls are rhyming like a DMX video. <laughs> how, how great of an effect did Dr. King have? Has, has he had on your life? It seems that you, you took up what he, and not just, you know, what pulled me to you was your voter right, Voters' Right Act interview. Well, you, you talked to, you, you talked about the, the restoration of the voters' right, and I remember thinking to myself, "Who the fuck is this crazy white guy?" Like, I, I it, it didn't even make sense to me because I, I have lived in Atlanta all my life, and I virtually heard no black politicians angry about it. I virtually heard no right, black you, politicians you outraged about, about it. Let me tell you, you were the only voice of outrage. Let me tell you something. This is true. I am a fierce believer in democracy. You know what? I love democracy. I love the fact that in this room somebody disagrees with me. They say, Bernie, you're full of shit. I'm going to vote against you. Yeah. It's fine. I love it. I love people thinking yeah. about what kind of future they want. And I feel, because I've been in politics for many years, running many elections, that these people all over America now, as a result of the Supreme Court decision to gut the Voting Rights Act, yeah. day after, they're sitting up thinking, all right, great. How do we deny people the right to vote? Yeah. They are cowards. Absolutely. They are cowards because they're afraid 
to contest a free and fair election. They can't win it. So they got to figure out, how do I come up with some cockamamie scheme to deny some little old lady the right to vote because she's going to vote against it? That disgusts me. Profoundly disgusts me. So what we have got to do is in this country do what many other countries around the earth do. You're 18 years of age, you're registered to vote. Let's forget all the rest of the crap. Yeah. And you want to commit voter fraud, you vote twice, you're going to pay a heavy price for that. Absolutely. Okay. But everybody has the right to vote. End of discussion. The other thing that I want to talk about, Mike, and I, you know, I, I get back to the media on this, is that people think that some of the ideas that I advocate are very radical ideas. They are not radical ideas. I live, do you ever get up to Burlington, Vermont? I haven't been to Burlington. If, at invite, though, I'll definitely. All right, come. you're invited. I'll, I'll come. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We live 50 miles from the Canadian border. Okay. Okay. Canada, everybody has health care as a right. It ain't a big deal. They've had it for, I don't know, 50 years or so. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Go to the UK. You been to the UK? Often. All right. Everybody has health care. Go to Scandinavia. Everybody has health care. Go to Germany. Go to France. Everybody has health care. Why do we, why are we the only major country that doesn't have health care for all of us? Not a radical idea. Go to Germany. Kids in the United States are going to Germany. You know why they're going to Germany? They can get free tuition in college there. Yeah. Good schools. Absolutely. All right. These are not radical ideas. And, and, and you're not BSing because my rap partner and I, you know, run the jewels. We travel the world. We've been around the world about four times now. We did 14 months straight. I spent my summer in Europe. And the, the first thing I ask Americans who preach fear of, of um, a one-payer health care system, for instance, I say, you ever been to Europe? Most Americans, God bless them, have, this is a beautiful country. We have every type of terrain, every type of weather you'd like. But if you've never been outside of this country, you have no way to appreciate, right. one, how great this country is, and two, how potentially great the country could be if we can make some subtle changes. And, and, and I see in Europe, I see other things working. And I'm wondering how long before we catch up and why do we keep having to play catch up when we could see a good idea, say we can implement this idea. This is a way for us to make an American, but this is a worthy idea. Free health care for citizens makes sense to me. College makes sense to me because the smarter constituency you have, the smarter country, you don't have to worry about importing other smart people. You got it. You know, you, you're growing your own. And that way your imports are an addition and not a necessity to the point you're leaving yourself almost vulnerable. You know, how long before this country becomes or or furthers the campaign of bullying until other countries are not willing to even cooperate with us? You know, so I don't I don't you know, I don't get into the international politics of it all, but I travel and I see things that work other places and I know they would work. Well, this gets back to the point you raised a little while ago about greed. You know, I don't have a problem with people making money. But I do have a problem with these guys who are worth billions spending a lot of their money, a lot of their money and their time and their energy. You know what they're trying to do? To destroy Social Security. Yeah. you got people in this community trying to get by on twelve, thirteen thousand dollars $13,000 a year. Why in God's name would somebody stay up nights trying to cut their Social Security benefits, yeah. cut their Medicare, Medicaid benefits? That's pretty pathetic. Yeah. So, you know, if you've been around the world, you know that there are countries that do a lot better for the children. They're great child care. Yeah. Okay. Do better on health care, do better for seniors so when they retire they can live with a little bit more dignity and security than our seniors can. That's all, that's all I'm talking about. It ain't so radical. There's an African proverb that says many hands make for light work. You know, that's right. And, and a lot of the tenements of socialism or social democracies are, are about, you know, everyone having some input. And I think that what people are missing um, from my community about not hearing your voice today, you're not saying, you know, Michael, sometimes we look up to rappers and athletes too much. 
as we think. And that's every, I mean, you know, every American looks up to the rich. You know, Lifestyles Rich and Famous was here long before rap, you know, in terms of the opulence. But a lot of times we think, well, those people earned that the right way they got it. And they don't understand now that I'm closer to being financially independent than I was, say, five years ago. My accountants give me different advice now. You know, they I, I'm 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 taught better ways to handle money that the regular public never gets an opportunity right. to have or see. You know, um, Fat Joe said he was a rapper one time. He said, you know, I'm telling people to go out and vote, but I'm rich already. I'm OK. I don't even have to say this. I'm doing this for you guys. I need for my community to understand that your message directly impacts them. So I got to transition this conversation to prison because some of the offers I've gotten to invest money in have been companies that supported private prisons. We have essentially, since Jim Crow in the South and the chain gang, which is big in Georgia, we have used, we have used prisoners essentially as indentured, servitude, indentured servants. I tell people when I was a kid, I can remember driving along the expressway and the expressway in Atlanta um, was cleaned by black men who worked for the city or the county of the state, you know, because I'm from a black city. And then as I got older into my teens and in my 20s, I started noticing that those crews were disappearing. So city workers who had their union, who were paid fairly, who lived in the communities that they were cutting, who as a kid, you got an opportunity to see, if, you know, if I get out of high school, don't go to college, I still can get a good job. Right. Those people started to fade and the city trucks started to fade. And what I started to see was prisoners on the side of the road cleaning, cleaning highways. And I thought you went to prison as punishment, not to be punished. And we haven't even gotten into the rehabilitation phase, but have we gotten comfortable as a country with Barack Obama being the first sitting president, in I don't know how long to actually enter a prison. Is this, is this campaign to ratify prisons, to, to, to stop an illegal drug war that really targets a particular color, race, and class of people? Um, do you continue that? And how vigorous will, are you going to be in that? Because that directly affects African-American males in particular. Uh, look, what is happening to the young male and female African-American community yeah. is a tragedy almost beyond words. Thank you. Right. Now, we're talking, we are talking about, people disagree on the statistics, but roughly speaking, one out of four black male babies born today. Yeah. If we do not change it, we'll Sir, end up in jail. Can you imagine Sir, that? Absolutely. You are talking about a higher percentage of blacks in jail in America today than was the case under apartheid in no. South Africa. Absolutely. Do you believe that? All right. You are talking about hundreds of thousands or even millions of black men who no longer have the right to vote. Absolutely. Because they were felons. Yeah. Okay. Do you change that? Oh, yeah, we change that. So, so felons get a restoration of right to vote. What about getting a job, Senator Felons, felons the answer is yes. My state, that's already the case. Felons can vote. Wow. Why? It, it, like, play, you got places like New York Island Barbershop. One of the best barber schools in the nation is in one of their prisons. Yet in places like New York and even Georgia, if you're a felon, it's harder, if not impossible, to get a barber's license. Right, right. So not only can you not go get a job exactly. working for a corporation that exploits you, you can't even be self-employed to, to produce for yourself because the state doesn't allow right. you to. And this is a point that I think not a lot of people are aware of. They're saying, all right, it's one thing, you sent 10 years in jail, that's terrible. You got a police record, you sent, spent one year in jail, right? You go out looking for the job. Guy says, okay, tell me about, you said, where were you last year? Well, I was in jail. Oh, yeah, well, have a nice day. We don't need you here, right? Yeah. You're finished. It's hard to make a living. It's hard to get credit. It's hard to do the things you need. Yeah. And then what happens? 
then you're often running into drugs and something else, right? And it gets worse. So I think this is an issue that we have got to absolutely focus on. And it's not just reforming police departments. It's not only doing away with uh, minimum sentencing, but it is also taking a hard look at the so-called war on drugs, which has destroyed many people's lives. So what have I done just recently for a start? As you know, the Controlled Substance Act, the Federal Controlled Substance Act, says that a Schedule One drug, it's marijuana, is the same as heroin. What do you think about that? I'm a marijuana smoker. That is absolute bullshit. Okay, of course it's crazy. Everybody knows that it's crazy. So we've taken, my legislation would take marijuana out of the Controlled Substance Act completely. That means you're not subjected to federal prosecution. And if your state wants to go forward and legalize marijuana, as four states have, well, they're not going to have any impediments from the federal government. Do you know how many lives have been destroyed? Because you tell me. Many I know. Many I know. People get smart possessing marijuana. What we also know where it becomes a racial issue is it turns out that uh, whites and blacks uh, utilize marijuana roughly equal in the communities. It turns out that's the case. Four times as many blacks are arrested for possession as whites. becomes a racial issue. So I think, you know, this is an issue that we have got to absolutely uh, deal with. And and I, I would love to see you just go on like a barbershop tour to, to say this, these things to black men in particular, not because I think black men are, are a separate base that you have to speak to, um, especially, but you know, we get discouraged, man, and we just don't go vote. You know, a lot of times when people are saying the Democratic vote is already like people suppose the Democratic vote in, out of the state of Georgia and in Atlanta, in particular, is married to Hillary Clinton. They, 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 that's that's what they think. I don't follow that thought. I think that there is a sleeping giant in this city of African American men, in particular, and women who have had uncles, nephews, sons, husbands, fathers involved in the prison complex illegally, but, you know, formed by the state in those bullshit laws, I believe that there's a sleeping giant ready to wake up and support that candidate. And that's part of the reason I wanted to even sit here today. I need for people who look like me and who are sympathetic to people who look like me. You know, I have a lot of white friends that are staunch advocates for things that have no effect on their general community. Honestly, it's a little better. If all the roadblocks are on my side of town and none of the roadblocks on there, I'll get caught with weed. They never will. But they're, they're adamant about helping to make sure that this gets fair. I think that there's a sleeping giant of voters, and I want to see, like, barbershops and Masonic lodges and, love to and mechanic guy. shops light up. Look, you're looking at a guy, as I said, I love democracy. I've had more town meetings. You know what a town, you know what a town meeting is. Yeah, absolutely. In Vermont, we go to small towns, a few hundred people. I do a town meeting. People come out, we talk. All right, you take me to the barbershops, I'll be there. And that was Killer Mike talking to Bernie Sanders in his series of interviews he's posted recently. You can find those on YouTube. And... In addition to that, you can find the song that we're going to go out with tonight. And that song is by Wayward Nephilim. You can find that on YouTube as well. And it's called A Tribute to Bernie Sanders, A Common Dream. If you want to reach out to me, you can send me a message at BernieUS2016 at gmail.com or follow me on Twitter at BernieUS2016. 
You can also check out more at bernie-2016.com. Thanks for listening. Say enough isn't enough, we gotta scream.